Well, I'm sure you know this is such a, a fascinating world that God has made. We now know that everything on the planet consists of atoms, mere atoms, that they all come together in such an amazing and, and complex way. Let's take water, for example. It is merely two hydrogen atoms and one oxygen atom. Yet that molecular structure alone gives it some unique properties. Just by way of an opening illustration, have you ever heard of the, the capillary action of water? Probably not, but because of the molecular structure of water, several forces are at work inside of it that enable it to, for example, defy gravity. There's cohesion. Water molecules like to stick together. There's adhesion. They like to stick to other things. There's strong surface tension. All this goes to say that this is why when you dip the edge of a paper towel into a, a cup of water, you can watch it just climb up the towel defying gravity. And you might think that's not that big of a deal, but plants couldn't survive without this property of water because they rely on this capillary action to draw water up from their roots to, to live. And speaking of plants, God designed plants with their own set of amazing and unique attributes. You've heard of photosynthesis. It's really mind-boggling when you think about it, the ability of plants to take the energy from the sun and convert it into fuel. Plants absorb carbon dioxide through their leaves, water from their roots, and then those two molecules will synthesize together to form carbohydrates, which is basically food for the plant. It's, it's amazing to think about. Now, some waste is produced. But that comes in the form of oxygen, and we're fine by that because God made us to run off of that. Now, I know you're probably wondering why we're talking about capillary action and photosynthesis in a sermon. Well, they're simply examples of, of very unique attributes that God has given to organisms and systems that he made. Part of what makes water water is its capillary action. It's a defining attribute. The same goes for plants. That's part of their definition. It's part of their essence, this photosynthesis. It's a defining characteristic of them. God also made us humans with our own set of defining attributes. We have physical attributes. We walk upright on two legs. We need food, water, and air to survive. But God also designed humans with a certain set of moral and character attributes. Love, compassion, kindness, courage, hope, justice. When you say these are part of what it means to be human, these are part of human nature that set us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom. And I bring all this up because it actually helps us to think on and reflect on Jesus. On earth, Jesus was identified as a human, and rightly so. He exhibited all the physical and social attributes of a human minus a sin nature. He looked like a human, he ate like a human, he slept like a human. And you know, as the saying goes, if it looks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And for this reason, Jesus was recognized as a human. We don't dispute that. We, we fully affirm that he had a full human nature. But as you also know, over the past couple thousand years, many have, have wondered, was Jesus something more? Did he also possess a divine nature? Was he divine? And if so, how could you tell? God is spirit, so we don't expect Jesus to look like God per se. God has no image or form. So if he had a divine nature, how could you even tell? Well, one big way to answer that question is through his attributes. Plants have essential attributes that set them apart. Humans have essential attributes that set them apart. And God has 
essential attributes that set even him apart. Like all beings, in a sense, we know God by his attributes. What defines God to us, what sets him apart, are his divine attributes, his distinguishing characteristics. So while we don't dispute that Jesus had a full set of human attributes, if he can be seen to have a full set of divine attributes as well, then we can say he was more than a man. He was the God-man, God incarnate, that he was divine. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. You can open your Bibles once again to Philippians chapter 2. We're making our way through Philippians. Three weeks ago, we came to the, the, the watershed passage of chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And having covered this passage, uh, it's all about Jesus in detail. It's since been our desire to return to this passage several times and use it as, as like a launching point just to, to learn more of Christ, to, to behold Christ more. That's what the church is about. That's what preaching is about. That's what the Christian life is about, beholding more of Christ. Don't forget, it was earlier in Philippians chapter 1 that Paul himself said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was Paul merely reflecting on the essence of this Christian pilgrimage we're all on, namely that this life, it's all about treasuring Christ. And only a life lived treasuring Christ can transform death into gain. In death, you lose everything. But only if you're in Christ, if you treasure Christ, does death become gain. Because in death, the only thing you gain more of in Christ is Christ. So needless to say, there's really no better use of our time than to try and behold more of Christ in the scriptures. So that's why we're, we're, we're stopping for a little while and using this passage in Philippians 2 as a launching point to, to see more of Christ. And we're doing that starting with his deity, doing a little study on the deity of, of Jesus. And that too is worth our time. The humanity of Jesus is essential for our salvation, for him to be our substitute. But the deity of Jesus is also essential for him to be our sufficient substitute. You call on Jesus to be saved, but if he's not divine, he can't hear you. He can't help you. He can't save you. His death on the cross was empty and void. You have to see that our hope is tied up with his divine nature. So to build up our hope this morning and to deepen your confidence in Jesus as Lord, we've been studying the deity of Jesus. And we've been doing that by looking at his DNA meaning his deeds, his names, his attributes. That's how we know that Jesus was more than a man, that he had a divine nature underneath. Jesus performed divine deeds. Jesus bore divine names. He even possessed divine attributes. And so far we've covered his divine deeds, his divine names, and we finished this little mini break this morning with the divine attributes of Christ. Although each week we're not trying to be exhaustive and, and cover everything in depth or in breadth, we want to survey the word with the goal to display that the deity of Jesus is not just an invention of some church council, that it really is the testimony of Scripture all over, and to bring that to bear in our lives. That truth is meant to strengthen your confidence and hope in Jesus, that he really is the supreme Lord and Savior, even of you. 
So by way of survey, we've studied the divine deeds, the divine names of Jesus. This morning, we, we continue with the divine attributes. We'll pick on six to be more specific. Six divine attributes of Jesus. It's not exhaustive. You could do lots more, I'm sure. But this is meant to expose you to some of the highlights of his divine nature, especially concerning some attributes that God does not share. And we're actually, we're going to begin with a pair. So we'll do the first two off the bat. Number one, the eternality of Jesus. And number two, the omnipotence of Jesus. The eternality and omnipotence of Jesus. Number one, number two. I'm going to start with these. We're actually going to be really brief because whether you've recognized this or not, we've actually already seen these on full display over the past couple of weeks. In fact, just look again at our starting passage in Philippians 2. Back in verse 5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. As we studied that passage originally, we learned that before his time on earth, Jesus existed. That already sets him apart from humans because that's not true of of normal humans. Yet Jesus was not merely pre-existent. He is self-existent. You see in verse 6 it says he existed in the form of God. Morphe in the Greek can refer to outer appearance or internal nature. We know God has no outer appearance. So it's hard to make this verse say anything other than Jesus shared in the essence of God. He had a divine nature. That's how he existed. Verse 6, the word for exist expresses a person's unchangeable and essential nature. Jesus was eternally God. And, and as you know, that's an unalterable state. For Jesus to exist as God, that's not something that can be lost. By definition, if you could lose deity, that simply says you, you never were truly divine to begin with. And so he existed in the very form of God. And that means eternal. This notion of Christ's eternality, it's only confirmed elsewhere. For example, you might remember last week, we looked at John chapter 8, verse 58, where Jesus, he assumes for himself that you know, superlative name of God, I am. The great I am. That, that's a name that God took for himself in the Old Testament. What other name could God use? to describe, to to relate his self-existence, his transcendence, his eternality. There's none. So we just had to make something up in the sense that it's not even a name. It's just the verb to be. And God says he is, I am. He simply exists. Yet Jesus takes this name for himself. He is also the great I am with no beginning, no end. This is Christ. This was hinted at in the Old Testament. It was said of the Messiah that his going forth uh, are from long ago, from the days of eternity, Micah 5.2. The New Testament makes it crystal clear. Hebrews 7.3 says of Jesus, the Son of God, that he's eternal, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. All creation will perish, but Jesus will remain. He is the same, and his years will not come to an end. That's Hebrews 1.10-12. Everywhere... You see it put, Jesus, he's not part of the creation. He's the creator, set apart 
eternal. Look, we know that the human body of Jesus was created. But Jesus, as the Son of God, he existed beforehand as God. And such, his divine nature is co-equal and co-eternal with, with God. So this is why I love this part. You know, in the book of Revelation, for example, at the beginning, you see God the Father show up and he declares who he is. And he announces himself in Revelation 1.8. God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, who was, who is, who is to come. It's God declaring, revealing his self-existence, his eternality. There's no one like our God. But then you get to the very end of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 13, and guess what Jesus now says? He says the same thing. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Like, wait, Jesus, you can't say that. Only, only God can say that. He, that. You have to be eternal to say something like that. But no, Jesus can say that because he is the divine son. And he's expressing his own divine attribute, like God, of eternality. We've likewise already seen Jesus possess divine omnipotence, which refers to God's power, his all power. As being all-powerful. This was crystal clear when we studied Christ's divine deeds. There we learned that Jesus, God the Son, is actually revealed in Scripture to be the creator and sustainer of all things. I mean, that was, that was two weeks ago. We know that all three members partook in the work of creation, but it's actually Christ's power, the Son's power, that was the agent of creation. He, he made all things. So in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, just after saying that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, it says that by him all things were created. And in Hebrews 1, 2 and 3, after saying that Jesus, through whom God made the world, who is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature, it also says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. His power, he upholds all things. That's divine power. That's omnipotence. We could keep going, but like I said, we've actually already seen a lot of these attributes of Christ. It's true that during the incarnation, his power was veiled in large part. But that's no longer the case. And so we see in Philippians 3, for example, verse 20 and 21, that we now eagerly wait for a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. How? By the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. That is Christ and that is his power. It is divine power. This is Christ as eternal, Christ as omnipotent. In a way, that's, that's really a recap. We've seen him display these divine attributes in addition to his human nature. So now let's keep going. We'll look at a couple more in tandem as well. So let me also throw out to you number three and four, just back to back like this. Number three, the omniscience of Jesus. And number four, the omnipresence of Jesus. The omniscience of Jesus and the omnipresence of Jesus. And the reason I'm doing these as a pair They give us a perfect opportunity to to behold and talk about the dual natures of Jesus. The dual natures. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, like, 
I didn't sign up for this much doctrinal preaching this morning. I didn't have my coffee. But just hang in with me because these are the truths that build up our hope. We need to know Christ deeply in his, in his very nature to behold him. We can start back with what we learned from Philippians 2 again. You know, verse 6, he says, it says, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And just to refresh your memory, this emptying does not refer to Jesus losing his divine nature. In the incarnation, not a single divine attribute was lost or diminished. Instead, we discovered Jesus set aside not the attributes of deity, but the rights and the privileges of deity. He did so, verse 7 says, to take the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men. So we found that in the incarnation, Jesus did not lose his divine nature. Rather, he was gaining a human nature. And he willingly limited his glory by taking on a human nature. And he did this that he could live as one of us, for us, to die for us. And so it says thereafter, he, he did this and humbled himself as a man, even to the point of death on a cross. Now, how exactly two natures, one human, one divine, come together in one person of Jesus? That's a mystery to us in large part. But we can say what Scripture says. And Scripture says that although retaining his divine nature, Jesus took on a full, real human nature, which came with a full set of human attributes. And and part of his humility meant that Jesus had to live on earth fundamentally as a man. So all this means that although his divine nature was still possessed, it was not expressed. That's an easy way to remember, I guess. Possessed but not expressed. So for example, while Jesus was walking on earth, was he omniscient? Did he know all things? How would you answer that question? Well, his divine nature retained omniscience, of course. But his human nature did not possess omniscience. That's not an attribute of humanity. And he took on real humanity. And because Jesus lived as a man, he did not experience omniscience while he was on earth. And this explains why or the verses that teach that Jesus grew in wisdom and other people informed him of information. Jesus set aside the independent exercise of his divine rights and privileges, and he lived truly as a man. This also helps explain why people did not immediately recognize Jesus as God, but thought, that's just a carpenter's son. Some people are, are bothered by that. Like, if Jesus is really God, how come people didn't recognize it and thought he was just a man? Well, because it was the Father's intention for the Son to live on earth primarily according to his human nature, not according to his divine nature. It didn't go anywhere. It was possessed, but it was not to be expressed. He had to live as one of us, truly. That the Son of God came as a Son of Man to to live and die for fallen man that he might redeem man. And so during his time on earth, we expect to see Jesus display primarily a full set of normal, albeit perfect, human attributes. So hopefully you get all that. With that in mind, that being said, 
if Jesus still truly had a divine nature, okay, it's not going to be primarily expressed, we get that, but still we should see like some evidence of it, right? You'd expect that, that during the incarnation, sometimes a veil would be lifted and, and a divine nature would show through. Or also, when we see Jesus as God the Son in Scripture before the incarnation or after his time on earth, we'd also expect, you know, just to see that divine nature if it's really there, right? And that is what we see. And with all this in mind, now we can understand the omniscience of Jesus, for example, which refers to his divine knowledge. Though it was not on full display during his time on earth, there were times when Jesus revealed his cards and displayed the fact that he actually did know all things. You can think of, for example, the time when he saw Nathaniel under the fig tree. And when he told him this, even though Nathaniel was alone, Nathaniel understood, uh, whoa, that, you can't know that. That's, that's divine knowledge. How did you know that? And he even confessed right in that moment, recognizing Jesus was more than a man. He said, you are the son of God, John 1, 49. Or you might recall when Jesus encountered the woman at the well in John 4. Never saw her before in his life, but he immediately knew everything about her life, including her, her secret sins. Now, you might say, you know, that's just Jesus functioning as a prophet. But no, Jesus goes beyond the realm of a prophet because like God, he knows the hidden thoughts and intentions of a person's heart. And that's divine knowledge. That's something only God truly knows. Yet the New Testament epistles confirm that Jesus, who is no longer right now in his humble state, he possesses that same divine knowledge. 1 Corinthians 4, 5 says to wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. All that you've done is known by him and he even knows why you've done everything you've done better than you know. That's divine knowledge. Colossians 2, 3 says in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Revelation 2, 23, Jesus says, Know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Now, Christ's omniscience is actually related to his divine work as judge of all creation. We studied that as well. He knows all things, even the hidden intentions of a person's heart. And such omniscience is required for him to be a perfect judge. You need perfect information to be a perfect judge, yet Christ is both. You get the same picture of Christ's omnipresence. That refers to God being everywhere present. While on earth, clearly Jesus was not displaying omnipresence. He was in one place at, at one time. He experienced life on earth as a man. So again, his divine omnipresence was possessed but not expressed. But still, Jesus himself spoke of a time when his glory would no longer be veiled. And he painted the picture of himself as an omnipresent Lord, just like God. So, for example, Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus told the disciples that he would be with them always, even until the end of the age. He would be present with them as their Lord, as the eternal omnipresent Lord. And in John 14, 23, He likewise promised his disciples that he would later, after he ascends to the Father, he would be in them and with them always. 
And that refers to all of his disciples, all believers, all ages, all places. Christ would be with them, and he is. We can say that in a very real spiritual sense. Jesus is everywhere present with his church. In fact, that's our hope. As Colossians 1.27 puts it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Again, I could say we could take these attributes and, and run with them a lot further. We did that a while ago in a, a DD of Christ study on Sunday nights. But hopefully this just gives you some exposure and helps you to think through and understand Christ's divine attributes. I mean, you might read your Bible, you see Jesus in the Gospels, and <clears throat> he's, he's getting tired, he's hungry, he's thirsty. And you think to yourself, that doesn't seem like God would do that. I mean, it seems just like a man. But understand, he had to live as a true human, in order to take the place of humans and die for humans and redeem humans. And so this is why verse 8 says, back in Philippians 2, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we thank the Lord for Christ's humility, because otherwise we'd, we'd still be lost. But understand, none of this means his divine nature was lost. It was not. Jesus, as God the Son, retained all of his divine attributes. And though they weren't on full display as he walked the earth, you see Jesus as the Son before and after that time, and you see his divine nature all over the place. Now, I want to move along and spend some time exploring a few of the communicable attributes of God. Have you ever heard that word before? the communicable attributes, in contrast with what's called the incommunicable attributes. Don't worry, there's no test. won't be on the test. You don't have to worry about it. But it means the incommunicable attributes, the, the attributes of God that are not shared with any other being. And so the fact that we've already seen some, Jesus possesses the, the eternality of God, the omnipotence, the omniscience, the omnipresence. Those are only for God. He doesn't share those. The fact that Jesus possesses them that already says enough about who Jesus is. But there are some other attributes of God which he does share with humans. They're known as communicable attributes. They're communicated to us, so to speak. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. There's still a distinction to make, though, because God is perfect in all his ways. So whereas we can be loving like God is loving, but only God is perfect in love, we can be just, like God is just, but only God is perfect in justice. So on the one hand, when you discover that Jesus possessed these communicable attributes, you may think, well, it's like not a big deal. Every human possesses them. And that's true. But what we find is that Jesus possesses these just like God, to the same ultimate degree, perfect degree as God himself. We're going to see that for Jesus. These are divine attributes. And we'll go next to this. Number five, the holiness of Jesus. Number five, the holiness of Jesus. Now first, just to talk about God, there are two ways of understanding the holiness of Jesus. You probably know the word holy basically means you know, set apart, distinct, consecrated. And God himself, he's set apart from all creation in two ways. First, he's, he's ethically holy, morally holy. He, he's apart from all sin, all evil. 
And secondly, God is transcendently holy. He's separate from all creation in, in infinite majesty. He's just a different being. God's holiness sets him apart from all things. So 1 Samuel 2.2 2 says, There is no one holy like the Lord. And Isaiah 57.15, God is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, it says. Angels can be holy, sure, meaning free from sin, but no being is transcendently holy like God himself. In fact, do you know how the angels and heavenly beings think of God? We actually find out in Isaiah 6. You might recall that that's the throne room vision of Isaiah. He has a vision and he beholds the throne of God. And surrounding the throne are what? These heavenly beings. And they cover their eyes. They can't even look upon God's majesty. And what do they say? They cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That, that is majestic holiness. These are holy angels. They have never sinned in their existence. Yet they think God is a holy one. He is supreme in his holiness. He's other. And by definition, this holiness of God cannot be shared by any creature. This is part of what makes God, God. As a quick side note, you fast forward from that vision 800 years or so, and the Apostle John, he's given a vision of the throne of God, and he sees the same thing. You've got the same heavenly beings surrounding the throne, and they're, they're still saying the same thing. They're still there crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty. That's their job for eternity. That's just how holy God is. He's surrounded with the praise of his holy name. But here's the amazing thing, though. In the New Testament, Jesus is called holy in this sense. Like I said, at first you might think, for Jesus to be called holy, it's not that big of a deal. Because, look, aren't, aren't we told to be holy like God is holy? Aren't there like holy men like Moses and David and Paul? But you have to understand, Jesus, he was not called holy like, like a priest or like a man. Christ is seen to share God's own holiness. He's transcendent in holiness, which is evidenced by his perfect character. First, you'll notice that Jesus, unlike any human, was completely sinless. And not just sinless, but perfectly righteous. It would take just one sin to disqualify Jesus from being the divine Lord. Even just a sinful thought, just one. But he was perfect in all his ways. So 2 Corinthians 5.21 testifies that Jesus knew no sin. 1 Peter 1.19 says he's the lamb, unblemished spotless. In chapter 2, 22, 1 Peter, he committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5 says, in him there was no sin. And Hebrews 4, 7 even says, or 4, 15 rather, that Jesus, he had been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. It's just like Jesus himself said in John 8, 29. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. Always. I mean, you just try, for the fun of it, you just try for one day to be completely sinless. Not a sinful thought, not a sinful deed, and not just sinless, but perfectly righteous. Just try for one day. You wouldn't last a few hours, nor would I. Even Christ's enemies, though, like Pilate, 
Judas Iscariot, the thief on the cross. In the end, they had no choice but to confess Jesus was truly innocent. He had done nothing. But there's more. Because Jesus was not just ethically holy, he was transcendently holy. Jesus is regarded as a truly holy being on another level from all created beings, including angels. He is holy alone like God is holy. Hebrews 7.26 says that Jesus is holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Acts 3.14, the apostles rightly recognize that Jesus is the holy and righteous one. They're referring to him being superlative, supreme, the holy one, just like God was called the holy and righteous one. Even the demons had no choice, but when they saw Jesus to confess, we we know who you really are, the holy one of God. Above angels, far above angels, Christ is holy on God's level. And don't forget that one passage we looked at last week, John 12, 41. Right before this, Christ is teaching about himself being the light. And he says, while you have the light, believe in the light, verse 36. But after this, John chimes in, and he writes to explain why so many Jews didn't recognize the light. And he, he, he does so by quoting Isaiah 6, remember that throne room vision of God, to explain Israel's hardness of heart. But then John says this about Jesus in reference to Isaiah 6. He says in John 12:41, These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory, Christ, and spoke of him. So again, just think about this, even though we did this last week. In that vision of Isaiah 6, who did he see on the throne? In Isaiah 6, it says he saw the Lord God the almighty Yahweh on the throne, that the one true God who is holy, 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 that's who he saw. Yet John tells us that that Isaiah was really beholding the son of God, that Christ was on that throne. Jesus is that God, the transcendently holy God come down for us. And that's why we can say that the father is divinely holy. The spirit is divinely holy. I mean, we call him the Holy Spirit and the son is divinely holy. You know, right after this, Jesus says in John 12, 46, he says, I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. It's no accident that John sandwiches Christ's holiness, his divine holiness, in between Christ's teaching on being the light of the world. Because what is the chief picture given to us in scripture to try and and understand God's transcendent holiness. The primary picture is light. It's the best we can do to to conceptualize God's otherworldly holiness. 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. But what do you know? When Jesus came, who was Jesus? He was the light. He says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Here's the point. You put it all together. Scripture teaches there's no one holy like our God. God alone is holy. Yet, we find Jesus, he's holy just like our God. That's because as you behold the holiness of Jesus, you are beholding the holiness of God. This is the divine 
holiness of Jesus. Well, we got one more to go. Number six, we'll do the glory of Jesus. You pick from many, but I wanted to hit some of the highlights. Number six, the glory of Jesus. Just as there are two ways of understanding the holiness of God, there's two ways of understanding the glory of God. The first is as an attribute or a characteristic of God. In this sense, God's glory refers to his majesty, his splendor, his brilliance. The Hebrew word for glory referred to a sense of weight. This was God's weightiness. He's supreme in weightiness, meaning his being is worth more than all. This is why God alone is worth all of our praise, our adoration, our worship, because he's weighty, he's worthy. That's his glory. Scripture also uses God's glory as a means of describing the manifestation of his special presence, as some way to, to picture God's presence among his people. It's kind of related to holiness, but in the Bible, you have images of, of light and fire and smoke, and they're used to represent God's very own special presence with his people. So you might recall the pillar of fire and cloud that led the Jews in the wilderness, or the terrifying thick cloud that descended on Mount Sinai, or even the glory cloud that filled the temple. These were physical manifestations of God's special presence, his glory. They were referred to as his glory. There there were ways for God, who has no form, to let people know he was there. He was in their midst. He was with his people. And although the people were still kept separate, they could say, God is with us. He's right there. He's in the tabernacle. He dwells in that tabernacle. Yet this visual depiction of God's glory was also used to signify God's judgment on the people. For as the Jews forsook God time and time again, eventually that, that glory left. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, the people were unworthy to dwell with God's presence. They were not holy. And so famously, Ezekiel 10 describes that glory cloud departing from the temple, leaving the promised land. God's glory is no longer in their midst. But thankfully, the Old Testament ends with a promise that God's glory and his presence would return to his people once again. And so Ezekiel ends with a vision of God's glory, the cloud coming back and filling a new temple with new people who've been given God's own spirit and they're all being led by the Messiah, the Prince, God's Prince. And so the message is God's special presence, his glory will dwell in the midst of his people once again. That's how the Old Testament basically ends. And guess what? That promise is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God come down to redeem and then dwell among God's people. First, Jesus uniquely shares God's glory in the sense of his supreme worth. Jesus possesses the attribute of glory to the same degree of God. We've already quoted Hebrews 1.3 so many times, but it's such a stunning verse. It's speaking of the Son, and it says that he, Jesus, he's the radiance of God's glory. And he's the exact representation of his nature. And the whole point of Hebrews 1 is Christ is far above the angels. That's not true of the angels. It's only true of the Son. God himself testifies 
that he will not give his glory to another. That, that's not something that changes hands, Isaiah 42.8. God's essential glory cannot be shared. Yet though veiled during his time on earth, Jesus revealed that that's his glory from eternity past. You might know John 17.5 where Jesus prayed to the Father. He says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. But we can take this even a step further because in, in addition, Jesus, he is the glory of God incarnate. He is God's special presence come down, dwelling with his people. We spent a lot of time in John 1.1, 1, 1, just think back there. John's whole point is concerning the identity of Jesus. And he says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, the word was God, verse four, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the eternal word come down. He's the light of God. He's also the word made flesh. You know verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Some of you know, I'm sure, it's such a pregnant verse. This word for dwelt. It's the same word for, for tabernacle in the Old Testament. It's saying Jesus literally tabernacled among us. And John chooses that word on purpose to signify that God's special presence, it doesn't dwell in some tent, but it dwells in the person of Jesus. And to behold Jesus is to behold the glory of God. So he says, we beheld his glory. Though mostly veiled on earth, the disciples still saw the glory of Christ, which was the same glory as God, full of grace and truth. And that last phrase right there is itself reminiscent to Moses with God on Mount Sinai. Before Moses, he appealed to God and he said to God, Lord, show me your glory. He just wanted to know God and God obliged. He caused all of his fullness to pass before Moses and Moses beheld the glory of God and it was not in an image, but it came in a declaration of what? Of God's attributes. Primarily that he was full of grace and truth, among others. But you have to realize, this is Jesus now. Jesus is the personal incarnate manifestation of God's glorious presence. That's why he was called Emmanuel, God with us. Again, his time on earth, his glory was veiled. But John 2.11 says, his signs manifested his glory. And also think of the transfiguration. John himself was there. He saw Jesus lift that veil ever so slightly revealing the divine glory underneath on that mountain. And what do you know? Who shows up but Moses and Elijah, the two men who had these unique encounters with the glory of God in the Old Testament. And while no one has seen God at any time, I believe that on that mountain, Moses' prayer was, was truly answered where he saw God's glory in the face of Christ, the glorified Christ. Like Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
It was necessary for Jesus to humble himself and suffer that he might redeem a people for himself and then enter into his glory, it says. In fact, really the mind-blowing truth of the New Testament is that God's people now become the new temple. Essentially, we are the temple, the special dwelling place of God. God now dwells with us, in us, directly, via our union with Christ, made real by the Holy Spirit. This is the glory of the triune God dwelling with his people once again. All people will eventually recognize and bow to the glory of Jesus. Matthew 25 says Jesus will return in his glory. He will sit on his glorious throne. He will judge. He will make all things right. And then it says the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And then at the very end, Scripture gives us insight into God's final plan for his eternal kingdom. The Lord will create a new heavens and a new earth. It's like a new promised land for God's people. And what does that new place feature? Revelation 1, or 21 verse 3 says, John, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. The end of the story is God's eternal people living in God's eternal place with God's eternal presence. What you have to realize is the people, we will experience God's presence in the person of Jesus. And so down in 22 it says, John says of that place, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. I don't think it can be any clearer. Jesus, the Son, the Lamb, He is the very glory of God. He is God's presence, His special presence, His glory come down for us. At this point, we could, we could keep going. There are many other attributes of Christ to talk about. His immutability, love, truth, justice, so forth. But this little survey will suffice for now. But don't miss the point. What is the point of, of studying all this? Well, I want you to consider over and over in Scripture, you have this refrain, there's no one like our God. It's the whole point of the Bible. There's no one like our God. He's set apart. No one does the deeds of our God. No one bears the names of our God. No one possesses the attributes of our God. This is why he alone, apart from all the other false gods and religions, this God alone is worthy of supreme worship and praise and adoration. And to give that worship to anything else is idolatry. Because there's no one like our God. But at the same time, we discover over and over again, Jesus, he's just like our God. He's just like our God. Jesus does the deeds of God. He bears the names of God. He possesses even the attributes of God. Colossians 2.9 says, In him the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. There's only one conclusion to, to derive from all of this. Jesus is our God. He is the Son of God and God the Son come down. Look, I know in a sense it's such a wild claim 
that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, was actually the God of the universe. And who would believe such a thing? I had a friend back in high school. He had a keychain that said, my God is a Jewish carpenter. That just sounds so ridiculous. Who would believe that? I mean, this, this no-name Jew from some backwoods town 2,000 years ago was actually the creator God of the universe. Who's going to believe that? And even more, he wasn't even recognized by the vast majority of people, but was instead executed as a common criminal in the worst of ways by crucifixion. Well, that just sounds crazy. Who's going to believe this? No wonder that Paul said that this message to the Jews, it's a stumbling block to the, the Gentiles, is foolishness. Who will believe our report? Well, I'll tell you. The word of the cross, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's, it's the power of God. This is not man's wisdom, but God's wisdom. And the real reason we believe is because God has revealed to us by the Spirit of God that Jesus is the Son of God, even God the Son We too once were blind to the truth, yet God shone the light of Christ in our hearts. Just listen to this verse. Do your best. Close your eyes if you have to. But listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 6, and just pay attention. It says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. For us who believe in Christ, are we any better? No, in fact, this this actually makes us fools. We are the fools of the world. But we're comforted to know that the foolishness of God is still wiser than the wisdom of men. We're no better. We are merely those who have received God's grace, whose eyes have been opened to behold Christ as not just the Son, but the divine Son. And for this reason, Paul says there, because of all this, we don't preach ourselves. We don't go around preaching ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves merely as his bondservants. And if you get that, that right there, that that right there totally encapsulates what this whole little mini-series on the deity of Christ has been about. It's all about Jesus, seeing him as supreme, It's about embracing him as Lord, preaching him as Lord, living for him, not ourselves, but him as Lord, and us merely as his bondservants. This life, not about us, not our praise, not our name, not our glory, not our recognition. It's all about him. He's worthy. And so we found in Philippians 2, after his humiliation to the point of death, even death on the cross, It says, God bestowed on him the name above all names, that every tongue would confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus came first in the form of a bondservant, not recognized to serve us, to save us, to open our eyes, and now enlightened 
we serve him. We become his bondservants, living to magnify his name, not our own. And the point of this is this needs to be the point of your life. That, that's, that's the point. All of this is true. If this is true, this is the point of your life. Christ is your treasure, that the point of your life. One day, all will truly recognize that Jesus is the divine Lord. The real question is, will you do this now unto salvation? Will you confess him as the divine Lord, believing it's all true? And will you display that belief by living accordingly, like he really is the divine Lord? Talk, in a sense, is cheap. Anyone can mouth the words, Jesus is Lord. In fact, we know that many will say on the day when he comes in his glory, Lord, Lord, I thought we knew you. They call him Lord, but Christ will merely say to them, I I never knew you. Will you truly live your entire life like Jesus is this, this supreme, worthy, divine Lord? Because to some, he will say, depart from me, I, I never knew you. I wasn't your Lord. But serve him by faith as this divine Lord. And to you, he will say, well done, my good and faithful bondservant. Let us offer up our entire lives to the divine Lord who first offered up his life for us. Let's pray. Our blessed God and Redeemer, we thank you for this word this morning. As we behold Christ, we are spending our time as as best as we can. There's no greater thing we can do with our time than to see more of our Savior in your scriptures. And we have seen him this this morning, Lord, as, as not just a man, not just a son, but a son of God, even God the Son. And we exalt him as such. We recognize and confess that Jesus is Lord. And we do that now, Lord. For any who haven't, I pray that they behold the Son. And you, Lord, lift that veil over their hearts, over their eyes, that they too might behold the light of the glory of Christ. And believe, Lord, you must do this work. And we pray that as the word goes forth, you do so. We know you will. You are faithful. May we in turn be faithful now to to respond. And we do that by lifting up our lips, our lives, all that we are. In service of Christ, we are now merely his slaves, his bondservants. We live for him. That, that's no, there's no better way to live. For we've been bought with his price and we are now glorify you, Lord, with, with our bodies, with our lives. To you be the glory, to you be the praise. We can say there's no one like our God, yet Christ is just like our God. So we will praise our triune God and lift high your name. It is in the name of Christ that we pray these things. Amen.